Welcome to episode 210 of This Week in Linux, a podcast by the Tux Digital Network. This episode of Twill was recorded live on August 20th, 2022. I'm your host, Michael Tunnell. If you're new to the show, this is a podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. On this week's episode, we've got some distro news, app news, and even some drama news, again, just like last week, but different news, not the same as last week. You get it. All this and so much more coming up right now on your weekly source for Linux Good News. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean and by Bitwarden. This Week in Linux is part of the Tux Digital Network, which also has a lot of other great content to check out if you haven't already. And in addition to all of the great content like Destination Linux, Hardware Addicts, Pseudo Show, Linux Out Loud, and more, you can also become a member of the Tux Digital community. To do so, you just go to tuxdigital.com community and pick whichever platform you want to participate in. We have the Tux Digital forums, a Discord server, IRC channels, and even a Steam group for my fellow gamers out there to join. And if any of that sounds like something you want to check out, you'll find links in the show notes. Or if you're a rebel and prefer to type it in yourself, then tuxdigital.com slash community. But first in the show, I want to give a quick happy birthday to the GNOME project. So GNOME Desktop or the GNOME project was started in 1997. And this week they had their 25th anniversary. So I just wanted to say really quick, happy birthday. And also they have some information about the next version of GNOME, which is GNOME 43 beta that was released. So we're going to talk about a little bit of that. We're going to go into much details because we're going to wait until the the full version comes out and we're going to go into all the in-depth stuff. But I do want to have a few highlights that I want to talk about. There have been many core improvements to the GNOME shell, such as better multi-monitor support, improvements to high-resolution scaling, a new quick settings menu. The Nautilus file manager gets a lot of new improvements, including a new adaptive sidebar and much more. There's also some changes to the Epiphany web browser, which I'm very excited about because Epiphany, also known as GNOME Web, which the naming thing is a weird problem that GNOME does. But other than that, I'm really happy about this part is that it now supports web extension APIs. So this means it will now let you install Firefox extensions and Chrome extensions in GNOME Web, which is awesome. I mean, this is really cool because it opens up a wide array of improvements and possibilities with GNOME Web. And the first thing I'm curious to test is to see if the Firefox container tabs works in Epiphany or not, because that would be really cool if it did. And for those unfamiliar with what Firefox containers are, I'll have a link in the show notes to the video I made showing what they are and why they're my favorite feature of Firefox. Now, back to GNOME 43 beta. They ha- there also, also has been some improvements to the GNOME settings and the GNOME software store, which we will go into much more detail when the final version of GNOME 43 is released. But in the meantime, once again, happy birthday to the GNOME team. And as always, links in the show notes. This week, the KDE team released the KDE Gear Suite 22.08. This is related to KDE's application suites. It used to be called KDE Applications, but they changed it to KDE Gear for those who didn't know what that was. We're going to talk about a few of the different applications in the application suite release, but it's not, we're not going to be talking about everything because there's just so much. And also we're going to be able to highlight a few things from each of these different applications. So the applications we're going to be talking about are Spectacle, Calendar, KDE Itinerary, FileLite, Dolphin, Eliza, Elisa, not sure, Kate and Live, and Kate slash Kwrite. 
So first of all, let's talk about Spectacle. Spectacle now displays the keyboard shortcuts with different capture modes. And this is really nice because it allows you to quickly know how to do various different things, such as just doing the print screen. You can also do shift print screen and many more to be able to do an active window capture or do a, a special region capture and many more things. So that's really nice. They're making it easier for people to know how to do those. Uh, there's also some updates to the annotation mode. And for those who are not familiar with the annotation mode, it is a fantastic feature of Spectacle because it allows you to easily and quickly do various different edits to your images. Say, for example, you want to have an arrow that is pointing to something to you know, make it clear that someone, you know, a specific part of that screenshot. You can also add text and they've added a new feature, which is kind of like a dialogue box sort of thing where it allows you to do a combination of the two where you can just start typing once you draw the, the shape and then it will basically resize itself to whatever you need the size to be with the text that you entered, which is really nice. Also, let's talk about the next application, which is Calendar. Calendar is the calendar application, but it's spelled with a K because KDE naturally. And this new version includes uh, contacts features, which basically means that you can uh, connect your address book from a variety of different sources and it will be able to use it. If you want to use like Google Calendar or you know Gmail, that sort of thing, you can do that, which is fantastic. Uh, the calendar view has also been enhanced and now you can use uh, subtasks and parent tasks right in the task sidebar to make it easier to use, which is great. And calendar has a lot of potential. It is a very nice looking calendar app and something that KDE's had for a while, but it also was incorporated in a, a much larger application suite. So I'm really happy to see a more modern approach to doing calendars. So check that out if you want to know more about it. Links in the show notes. Let's also talk about KDE Itinerary. So KDE Itinerary is a travel assistant that helps you plan your trips. So it manages your tickets, boarding passes, and it guides you through airports, like and also trains and bus stations and stuff like that, being able to kind of show you like different maps and stuff based on these you know different places you're going, which is really cool. And they've also added some Im improvements such as an integrated barcode scanner that allows you to import tickets to make the traveling even easier. I didn't use this on my way to Southern California the for the scale, the Southern California Linux Expo. Uh, unfortunately, because I forgot about it, but I'm going to add it right now, right after done the show to, you know, use it for the next time I go on a trip. So I'm looking forward to trying it out. The next top the application we're going to be talking about is FileLite. FileLite is a disk usage analyzer, which makes it easy for you to tell what kind of applications, uh, well, it lets you see what files are taking up storage on your drives and where and how much. And it's really nice because it, it's, it's a nice visual overlay of how it all to breaks down. So it just makes it a lot easier to do to find out everything and rather than just going through and searching for all the files. It just makes it, it's a not light cleaner. And they've also overhauled the appearance to make it even more modern. So it looks much better now too. So that's really cool. They've also simplified the code even by porting it to Qt quick. So link in the show notes for that. Uh, let's also talk about the file manager for KDE, which is Dolphin. With Dolphin, you can basically do anything because Dolphin is incredibly powerful. But now they've also made it possible to be able to remove individual items from your recent files and recent locations if you'd like to. And they've added a new sorting option, which by the way, Dolphin already has a ton of different sorting options. But 
They had to add some more, which is fantastic. I like it, especially with the one they added, which is file extension. So you can now specify searching and sorting specifically for how you want your files to do it. And it's really great if you have a bunch of different image files or a bunch of different video files all in the same uh, folder. You can now sort it specifically by those extensions, which is just awesome. And there's a lot more in this latest release of Dolphin. So you can check that out in the show notes. Also, we're going to talk about the music player, Elisa. Elisa. I'm not sure how to say that. It has a lot of improvements for the navigation of the application, and it is now more optimized for touchscreen interactions, which is really nice. And the next topic we're going to talk about is something that is people expect me to talk about, and they're correct because I will, and that's Caden Live. I'm a big fan of Caden Live. I use it to make this show every week, and this next, this latest release of 22.08 it has some really cool stuff. So they've improved the audio recording features. They've also made it possible to have a global styling of subtitles where you can adjust the font, color, size, position, and that sort of stuff. Because when the default current subtitle subtitles didn't really have much options for customization, and now you can do it. So like typically when I was doing subtitles on some of my videos, I would make a like a title clip and then make some changes there. But having it where you can just make sure that all your subtitles that you put in are going to be consistent across whatever design you want, fantastic, good job there. Also, they've made it possible to have an export of your guides as YouTube chapters. So that is a really cool feature. I actually have a script that I made for, uh, with in addition to one of the community members helped me make that actually, to, make, to do this myself. So to have this built right into Caden Live is really, really cool. Now, the next uh, application and the last one we're going to talk about is Kate. So Kate is a text editor. It's also, you know, might you might have K-Write because they're kind of, they're not exactly the same, but they they are related to each other. And the newest feature that they've added in both of these is called multi-cursor support. And this is awesome because I'm a huge fan of multiple cursors because they're very powerful and they allow you to customize different parts of a uh, text document all at the same time. So you can just hold contrick, contrick. You can hold control and then click. That's what I was trying to say. You hold control and then click anywhere and it will create a cursor there. And you can keep doing it over and over and be able to type in those sections all at the same time. And there's also shortcuts that allows you to like basically uh, multiply how many cursors are there. And it's just really cool that they've added it. I'm a big fan of this because I use it on my Sublime Text implementation. And I'm super happy to see Kate having it because it is so powerful. And as soon as you start using it, you're going to never want to go back. So check that out. I have links to that in the show notes as well. So links to all of the latest updates for KDE Gear 22.08 will be in the show notes. LibreOffice 7.4 was released this week, and with it are quite a few improvements. This is a point release, but some significant changes have arrived in this latest version of LibreOffice. So, for example, the features that are in 7.4 are that they have seen various UI and UX improvements. There's new typographic settings for LibreOffice Writer. The Calc spreadsheet software now supports up to 16,384 columns. I mean, Thankfully, they just they they got the 384 extra columns because otherwise 16,000 is just not enough. <laughs> Plus, many performance improvements to the Calc application. Uh, LibreOffice 7.4 adds support for WebP images as well for importing and exporting, which is awesome because WebP is getting more and more important and it is very efficient. 
yet at the same time still high quality format. So I'm glad that more applications are supporting it. They've also improved text layout performance for PDF export and other scenarios. And they've done some export enhancements and import enhancements for uh, Microsoft PowerPoint application or files and a lot more. And but one more important thing to you know branch off of that is that this release of LibreOffice 7.4 is that it provides a large number of improvements and new features targeting users who are sharing documents with MS Office users or migrating from MS Office to LibreOffice. They worked a lot on improving compatibility and interoperability with Microsoft Office documents, which is fantastic because this is kind of critical for those looking for an alternative to MS Office because they already have files that are in that format and they need to keep it running. So I'd really love to see that work being done for LibreOffice. And if you'd like to learn more about this latest release of LibreOffice, Office 7.4. Links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex, but standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. And DigitalOcean is going to make it easy for you to do all of that because you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your teams can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. And DigitalOcean also has predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. For example, the one-click install of Drop Droplets is so awesome from the marketplace. You can easily get started with DigitalOcean and it is just awesome to be able to set those up as fast as you can because I've done it many, many times and I'm a big fan of DigitalOcean. And also DigitalOcean supports you know, every stage of growth. Whether you're a team of one person or a team of a thousand people, with DigitalOcean's simple, powerful cloud computing, you can get growing at DigitalOcean. And as a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the Tux Digital community, you can get started for free on DigitalOcean's platform. In fact, better than free, because they're going to give you a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux2022. So again, go get started with that $100 free credit for 60 days on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform by going to do.co slash tux 2022. I want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Google announced this week the release of Android 13, including the source code to the AOSP or the Android Open Source Project. Android 13 offers better security features, UI theme refinements, uh, productivity enhancements, ART optimizations, improved garbage collection for performance, and a variety of other improvements. Android 13 is initially going to be available to Google Pixel devices and later will begin appearing on devices from other vendors such as Samsung and Sony and Asus, etc. Now, there are a few things I wanted to highlight about this release, but if you want the full details, you'll find links in the show notes for the release blog post. But first of all, let's talk about some uh, improvements to security stuff and some privacy stuff. For example, Photo Picker and APIs have a lot of improvements. A new system for Photo Picker now gives users a standard privacy-protecting way to share local and cloud-based photos. For example, Photo Picker extends Android's long-standing document picker and makes it easy for users to share specific photos and specific videos with an app rather than just saying your entire system because that's really how it works right now. You have to give the app permission to view everything right now. And this latest version of Android 13, you can specify an a actual image rather than the entire thing. So that's fantastic. 
They've also made some improvements to the notification permissions to help users focus on the notifications that are most important to them. So Android 13 introduces a new notification runtime permission where apps now need to request the permission for notifications from a user before they can start posting notifications, which is really cool because just today during the stream, I got a notification on my smartwatch that was basically a worthless notification I did not care about because I just installed a new application and then it decided to annoy me about something that did not matter. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that feature as well. <laughs> the next thing is another one I'm looking forward to is the nearby device permission for Wi-Fi. Now, uh, Android 13 introduces this nearby Wi-Fi devices runtime permission for apps that manage a device's connections to nearby access points over Wi-Fi. The new permission is required for many commonly used Wi-Fi APIs and enables apps to discover and connect to nearby devices over Wi-Fi without also needing the, the option for location permission. That is so ridiculous. There's so many times where I get an application or I get a device and I send it back because it wants my location. Like, no, I'm not going to give you my location in order to change the color of a light that I wanted. <laughs> no, thank you. That's ridiculous. So um, I'm glad that Android 13 is going to have a feature for that. Uh, the next thing I'm excited about is Bluetooth LE audio. LE means low energy audio. It's the next generation of wireless audio built to enable new use cases like sharing and broadcasting audio to friends and family or subscribing to public broadcasts for information, entertainment, that sort of stuff. But the reason that it's really cool is because it's designed to ensure that users can receive high fidelity audio without sacrificing battery life. So it's going to be low energy means it's going to use less battery and therefore you can use it for more, for much more long, much more time and just, you know, longer durations of a podcast or that sort of thing, especially like this show or destination Linux or everything on the Tux digital network, which you should be subscribed to and then putting in a playlist every single episode that comes out you know I, I think it's the best shows ever created and i'm not biased in any way that's just you know objectionable fact that i made up so anyway it lets you switch seamlessly between different use cases with the bluetooth le options and it's really cool to have uh, android 13 adding built-in support for le audio um, I do not have a Google Pixel, for example, so I don't. I haven't been able to test any of this stuff, but I am looking forward to getting it when I finally do get an update. I mean, this is kind of normal for Android because there's often times where you got to wait a little while to get updates for Android. This is not a new thing, but you know, I I wish they would improve the speed of which updates from other vendors come out to. But hopefully, that will happen someday. In the meantime, if you'd like to learn more, you can find links in the show notes. Did I say objectionable fact instead of objective fact? Did I say that? Oh, no. So I'm going to leave this part in because I just read a chat that said I said objectionable fact. Okay, I meant objective fact. <laughs> uh, I guess you could object to... I guess it is objectionable, really. So, yeah, I'm going to leave it. And also this part too. Why not? <laughs> Let's move on. Recently, there was a change that happened in the latest update to glibc that created a kind of a backlash in the community, and in some people's opinion, understandably so. Now, this change was to remove a section from the project's default build settings as glibc 2.36 removed dt underscore hash to as far as being the included by default. And it turns out that this piece of is, is a critical piece for Epic Games' Easy Anti-Cheat, or EAC. And it caused a lot of games to no longer run on Linux distros that shipped the update. 
Now, it's worth noting that DT underscore hash section is rather old and has been replaced in favor of DT underscore GNU underscore hash, which is it has been around for more than a decade now and can lead to much faster linking and loading time. So ultimately, it is better. And that's why they decided to remove it. However, some developers are apparently still using the older DT underscore hash exclusively, which is the cause of this problem. Now, users of rolling release distributions like Arch Linux were first to experience this issue and started reporting the problem to the Proton team and others. Now, with glibc 2.36, dt underscore hash no longer gets set since they dropped the tac tac hash tac style equals both. Since the dt underscore gnu underscore hash is superior, most systems should just be using that and is their theory about why I'm getting rid of it. But also at the same time, it would save some space, about 16 kilobytes of space in the glibc shared object. And that's why they removed it. But it turns out that Epic Games still relies on the dt underscore hash, like I mentioned, but also not just Epic Games. There's also other things that are supporting it for other games that are native games, not even EAC related. And also there are some other libraries that were affected by this change too. Now, there is an upstream glibc bug report over this issue, but there hasn't been any firm actions or plans just yet on how to address this. Some people are saying this is something that the glibc uh, shouldn't have to worry about and that distro maintainers should be worrying about the way it's packaged and, you know, package it whatever best fits their needs for their distribution and their users. Now, what's interesting about this is that Arch Linux uh, typically chooses to ship packages based on what the upstream decide to release, and very rarely do they make changes to upstream, and this is what caused the issue when the default setting was removed because when they built it, it didn't have that feature. Now, this is one of those cases, though, as Arch Linux packages are now doing the modification to the package, so glibc has decided to re-include it in the Arch Linux uh, repository for dt underscore hash to fix the issues going forward. In my opinion, I think it is uh, kind of silly for an upstream project to claim it's on distro maintainers to package something in a particular way rather than the upstream project making that the default way. And I know that they want to get rid of the something that is out of date. I, I get that. And because the other one is faster and it's you know better performance and all of that, I also understand that, that it should be used. But instead of removing functionality causing this kind of jarring incompatibility and watching the outcome, it seems like it would make more sense to contact downstream projects like Epic Games, for example, and inform them of the upcoming change so that Epic Games can change to the new hash system. Now, if Epic Games refused to update their EAC, then I could see breakage as like a last resort or something, but, well, I don't know what happened here. I, I still think the user experience should be the highest priority of above all, regardless. But you know that could at least explain the decision as an argument if that's were to happen. But I don't know if that happened. I'm not sure if they were if Epic Games were contacted or not, or what exactly was the the catalyst for this decision. But I do think that there is um, an argument to say they should get rid of it. But at the same time, the reason I think that it's it was too early is you shouldn't break user space. Like that's a very common thing that is known in Linux, but I think it's very important because decisions like this should be considering first and foremost, what is best for the user. Sure, sure the, this could make stuff take longer in the, on the long run, but ultimately this kind of decision does not shine a good light on the glibc project or Linux as a whole 
and the views of other companies that are supporting certain things like Epic Games has never been super excited to support Linux on things. So giving them an excuse not to support it is, is not great. So this sort of paints a picture of compatibility not being important to us. And I think it should be one of the most important things that we would have. Now, on that note, in a response on Twitter, uh, Valve developer Pierre-Lou Griffet says that, unfortunate that upstream glibc discussion on DT underscore hash isn't coming out strongly in favor of prioritizing compatibility with pre-existing applications. Every such instance contributes to damaging the idea of desktop Linux as a viable target for third-party developers. We understand that working with a, with a focus on compatibility requires more resources and more engineering trade-offs, but strongly believe it is nonetheless the way to go. And they also go on to say that we are very interested in helping with any underlying resource constraints. Now, that part is super interesting. And if Valve is going to put in the backing to help these sorts of things, that would be amazing. But for now, I think it is safe to say that most, if not all, distros will choose to include DT underscore hash in the future builds going forward, effectively kind of negating the decision of glibc to remove it from in the first place, you know, from the default settings. So really nothing changes from this decision because most users of most distros will have essentially nothing modified now that they've, uh, you know, experienced this kind of issue. So I hope this situation gives more upstream projects incentive to contact downstream teams to discuss things prior to making these kinds of decisions because, well, they need to do that. Now, the change, like I said, the change accomplished kind of not much, but I do think it's interesting. And I'm curious what you think about what this change will or will not do in the future. So leave me a comment in the in the the YouTube channel or on the forum about on this this episode, be very curious about what you think, and I'll keep you up to date when there are new changes related to this topic. But for now, if you'd like to learn more, links in the show notes. Speaking of breaking stuff, let's talk about something that's good that it was broken, and that's related to John Deere tractors. Because we'll get to it. So John Deere has been in the news uh, a lot in recent years related to the right to repair because they are pretty adamant that no one should be able to work on their equipment except them. So they do as much as they can to lock down their equipment from farmers. Now, this has been a hot topic for many years, actually for as long as I can remember the uh, terms of the right to repair topic comes up. It might even be one of the early topics related to right to repair. Uh, And it's back in the news again, thanks to a hacker known as Sick Codes, who demonstrated at DEFCON, their work on making John Deere tractors run the video game Doom. Get it? Demonstrated Doom? Okay, (laughs) so it's a long-term joke to get the game Doom running on basically everything from a Roomba to even a toaster. Yes, you can basically print stuff of Doom from on a piece of toast. And now John Deere tractor has been added to the list uh, security researcher Sick Codes worked with Doom modder Skelligant to get the game running on John Deere tractor displayed and showing off uh, some gameplay on the at the DEFCON hacking conference in Las Vegas. In the video posted by Sick Codes on Twitter, I will have a link to that if you want to check it out. You can see how the game plays a sort of transparent overlay on top of the John Deere user interface or UI, and SitCode says the whole process took months and involved jailbreaking the Linux system used by the John Deere 4240 tractor. Now, 
Naturally, this version of Doom has been modified to take place in a cornfield where the player mows down the enemies on a tractor. And if you'd like to see that in action, you'll see links in the show notes. But uh, Sick Codes isn't just jailbreaking tractors to get them to run Doom. According to a report from Wired, he also devised and presented a new jailbreak that gave him root access to the tractor system. This exploit could potentially help farmers bypass software blocks that prevent them from repairing the tractor themselves. Sitcodes uh, also said that he was able to obtain 1.5 gigabytes worth of logs that dealers could use to identify and diagnose problems. But he also found a way to gain root access by uh, soldering controllers directly to the tractor's circuit board. Unfortunately, gaining root access isn't that simple to do without the right equipment, but Sitcodes said that, uh, or told Wired that it would be possible to develop a tool based on the vulnerabilities to more easily execute the jailbreak, which would be really interesting. Plus, there are some saying reports that this is kind of a jailbreak that wouldn't be possible for John Deere to stop because it's at the hardware level, but I'm sure they will still try to do some sort of nonsense because it is, it's John Deere. So John Deere is essentially notorious at this point as being a big target in the right to repair fight because they insist that only they can fix anything. And this proves that that's definitely not the case. Also, there were uh, details and reports about the stuff that is already on the John Deere is very old and out of date, which is not shocking at all because of the companies who are insistent on this kind of thing typically are doing stuff to cut corners and really weird wonky things. So it makes sense. But it's just really awesome for the work done by Sick Codes to get this, you know, uh, done, and also presenting at DefCon with some videos and displays. So if you want to check all this stuff out, it's super interesting. I'll have links to the, about this news in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com/tux. Bitwarden is an awesome password manager that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do it? Well, Bitwarden provides you with various different kinds of tools. There's the Password Vault, where you store all of your passwords in it. They also have an auto-generator where you can generate passwords, usernames, and now email accounts thanks to the Firefox Relay support and also more services that are connected to that. And then there's also the ability to automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to do any of this stuff. Plus, you can have access to your data across many different types of devices. Whether it's your web browser, mobile application, desktop application, or even on the command line, Bitwarden has you covered. Also, Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices, so you know you're the only person with access to your data because it's doing it locally on your devices. So go to bitwarden.com tux to get started. Did I mention you can get started for free? Well, you can, so be sure to do that. But also, I think you want to check out their premium account because... You get all sorts of great stuff for less than a dollar per month. That's right. Less than a dollar per month gets you one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, Party Customer Service, Bitwarden Send, just so much great options for less than a dollar per month. So make the smart move like many community have and go to bitwarden.com slash tux to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Creative 5.1 was released this week, and it comes with a ton of small improvements and technical polish. It's a point release, so there's not a huge amount of stuff in terms of like massive features, but there is a lot of really good stuff in terms of polish and improvements. Now, this release sees updates to usability across the board, such as improved file format handling and a whole lot of changes to the selection and field tools. Now, Krita makes use of the XSIMD 
rather than the VC now, thanks to this in, this update, which will improve the painting performance. And Creative 5.1 has added support for the JPEG XL image format, which is a very new, uh, new-ish. It's not super supported, but the fact that it has that is really cool. And also improves handling with WebP images, which is a little bit older than JPEG XL, but still very, very new, and is also the more adopted format, as well as offering up better support for Adobe Photoshop files, which is a very exciting thing for me, as Krita is already a pretty good alternative to Photoshop. It doesn't can't do everything, but it can do a lot, and I hope it continues to improve in that respect, because, well, I use Photoshop only when I have to, and thankfully, because of Photo P and Krita, I use Photoshop less and less every day, so that's awesome. And I actually haven't used Photoshop except for like once in the past year, I think, thanks to all these different tools. So I hope Krita continues to build on support for Photoshop because that'd be amazing. If you'd like to learn more about the latest release of Krita 5.1 or try out, try out the latest version for yourself, links in the show notes. Let's talk about a new project that I thought was very interesting and I wanted to put it on the show to get more attention to it because I hope the project grows and continues because it's pretty impressive. Now, this project is called Horizon Linux. Essentially, is a patched version of the Linux kernel for making Nintendo Switch games run natively. That's right. So, Horizon Linux takes many of the Switch's Horizon OS system calls and implements their behavior using Linux's existing uh like facilities for memory management, scheduling, synchronization, and much more, which means that at some point it could be possible to play Nintendo Switch games on a Linux PC, which is pretty awesome. Now, developer Kent Hall announced this project on Reddit, and it says, My original thought was merely that I wanted to run Switch games on my MacBook. Given that they're powered by the same ARM64 architecture, you should be able to run a Switch games machine code right on the CPU. No x86 transition layer needed. I was hoping to be able to achieve this entirely in user space by attaching uh, via ptrace to a processing executing the switch games code and trapping in any system calls to the tracer process. But this quickly proved infeasible without OS support for various reasons to do with switch programs, use of system registers and etc. Now, he continued to work on it, and he goes on to say that patching ARM64 Linux means that you get Linux vast hardware driver support for free, so not only can it be virtualized on Apple Silicon Max, but it can also run bare metal on any ARM64 hardware which supports Linux, even on lower-end hardware, given that there's no need to emulate the CPU. This should offer a good deal of flexibility in the future for running Switch games and hopefully will improve useful option option for game preservation. Now, this is really, really cool. And Kent provides demos of videos working as in terms of like, in, you know, various different games and even a commercial game called uh, Puyo Puyo Tetris. Never heard of it before, so I'm not, not sure how you say that. Running on a Jetson Nano. And this is really cool because they showed multiple videos of it running on a CPU rendering and also directly on the Nano, which made it much more responsive. Now, Kent also said that he wanted to gauge interest to see if the project was worth continuing, and the feedback on Reddit was enough to convince him of doing so. But I wanted to put it on the show to give non-Redditors a chance to provide their feedback on the project as well. And I also wanted to make it clear that I, too, hope this project continues because it sounds awesome. Now, if you'd like to learn more about this, uh, you can check it out. Or if you want to just share your interest and your support, you can find links in the show notes. 
Neptune Linux 7.5 ADA was released this week, and it is the first service release of Neptune 7 series. So Neptune is a Debian-based distribution, and Neptune 7.5 is using the Debian 11.4 as their base for this release. Neptune have updated the Linux kernel to version 5.18 to provide better support for modern hardware as well as fixing some bugs with existing hardware support. Now this is much more up to date than the, what comes on the standard standard Debian 11 stable, uh, but this is really cool to see, especially because of the hardware support. And Neptune 7.5 also now provides a way to create system backups thanks to the now Linux Mint RAN project timeshift. Now, there were also some many performance improvements in Neptune 7.5, but there's one thing I wanted to talk about because I think it's really cool that uh, this distribution is adding it, and I also kind of want other distributions to consider it because there is experimental support for persistence on the live ISO. So Neptune is working on making it possible to add persistence to their live ISO so that someone could use uh, Neptune directly from a USB flash drive or thumb drive and have files stored there rather than losing data upon reboot if they need to test something, you know, like a, you know, a setting or something. Now, this is cool because it means that you can basically test various different things that would normally require you to install the distribution before you could do those. And this makes it possible to, you know, not test everything, but test some stuff directly with the, the thumb drive. So I think this is something that um, very, very cool. And I want other distributions to consider doing something like this. And I look forward to playing with this in the future when they do have it ready to go. But right now, like I said, it's an experimental feature, so it's not really ready just yet. But if you'd like to learn more about the latest release of Neptune 5 or 7.5, check out the links in the show notes. If you missed a stream this week, we talked a lot about gaming and its importance. So I thought it's definitely an important thing to talk about in this show. So we're going to be talking about the latest sale for Humble Bundle, and that's the Humble Bundle Summer Sale. So let's check out the games that are currently on sale. There's a lot of different games. We're going to be talking about everything, but this is a really cool thing because there's a lot of cool games that are available, such as Golf With Your Friends, Spirit of the Island, Gang Beasts, Descenders, and many, many, many more. And you can find links in the show notes for the Humble Bundle Summer Sale, and of course, these uh, links are affiliate links. So if you do decide to get anything from the Humble, Humble Summer Sale, uh, please use those affiliate links because it will basically help the show with a small commission affiliate thing, you know, whatever. And uh, I much appreciate it. You'd be helping the show, the channel, the network, all that sort of stuff. So please consider using those links if you do decide to buy something from the Summer Sale. And I also want to talk about another game, but I'm going to put that separate because it's not a part of the summer sale, but it's something I still want to talk about because it's pretty awesome. So let's do that now. In addition to the summer sale, you can also get the new Spider-Man remastered from Marvel on Humble Bundle. And that is fantastic because this is a game that I have not been able to play but apparently it has really good support for Proton, so I'm excited to checking that out. And it's been a game I've been wanting to play, but it was only available for the PlayStation 5, I think. Maybe the PlayStation 4, I'm not sure. I, I stopped playing console games when uh, PC games for Linux came out, and I started, you know, just binging those instead. But I am so excited to play this. Now, it's not on sale, unfortunately, like I said, but it is still a game that I think is worth the money because there's a lot of great reviews. In fact, there's actually 16,411 overwhelmingly positive reviews for this game. So that probably should say something. Now, for those who are not familiar with Spider-Man, really? Anyone? 
But just in case, this is the world of Spider-Man where Peter Parker and Spider-Man collide. And oh, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna do it this way. I'm gonna do it this way instead. In a world where Peter Parker and Spider-Man collide, an original action-packed story plays experienced Peter Parker fighting big crime and iconic villains in Marvel's New York. Web swing through vibrant neighborhoods and defeat villains with epic takedowns in Spider-Man Remastered. Available August 12, 2022. <laughs> what do you think? Let me know in the comments what you think about my impression of the movie voice guy. Anyway, so... Links in the show notes for the game Spider-Man Remastered. And of course, these will be affiliate links. Like I said, if you would like to uh, help the show and the channel, you can use those links to get this. And a small commission will be going to the show to help me out making the show and all that. So links in the show notes and be sure to use them if you want this game. <laughs> Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. And if you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via Patreon, sponsors, and others. You can do so by becoming a patron at tuxdigital.com slash contribute. And if you do become a patron, you can join me during the live stream in the recording stadium to discuss stuff between topics and just hang out every week after the show in the patron-only post-show. You can also support the show by ordering the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt or the t-shirt, I did it again, or the This Week in Linux t-shirt at tuxdigital.com slash store. Plus, while you're there, you can check out all the other great stuff like hats, mugs, hoodies, stickers, coasters, all sorts of great stuff at tuxdigital.com slash store. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episodes of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Tux Digital Network. So go to tuxdigital.com and you can get all the great content that I am a part of as well as all the rest of the great content on the Tux Digital Network at tuxdigital.com. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time or 1700 UTC during Daylight Savings Time. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each and every week by going to tuxdigital.com slash live. Thanks again for watching. My name is Michael Tunnell with the Tux Digital Network, and I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux GNUs. <laughs>